Well, if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Consequences and God's love. If you're like me, there have been times in your life where you have sinned and you have faced certain consequences. Last week, I described for you a time in which I misbehaved uh, very poorly um, in the children's Bible club. And as a result, there were consequences for my sin. The consequences were that the, the crates of pop that my parents had purchased for the trip that was upcoming was revoked. And we were no longer um, privileged to imbibe in such beverages, right? But that didn't negate my parents' love for me, did it? No, and in fact, uh, my parents have bought me far more pops after that um, in future subsequent events. It's just that those pops that were saved for that trip were no longer to be had. The parents got them, but us kids did not. And so when we open up 2 Samuel chapter 12, we're going to see a very similar situation. David has sinned very grievously against the Lord. And David made the fatal error and believed that he could hide his sin from God. Why exactly he believed he could hide his sin from God is not completely clear. Perhaps it was because the ark was out of Jerusalem in the battlefield and he thought, well, if the ark is out of town, God will not see this sin. I can get away with this sinful act. Perhaps he just thought God did not see, or perhaps he thought that because he was king, his power would allow him to do things that other men in his kingdom could not get away with. Whatever the case is, God is now going to confront his king. I think as we work our way through the passage, you're going to see that the big idea is our sin must be disciplined, but God demonstrates his love still. Our sin must be disciplined, but God demonstrates his love still. If you want to take your Bibles, let's read 2 Samuel chapter 12, and then we will dive into the text. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse one. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him, and he said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock, and from his own herd to prepare for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb. Because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man, thus says the Lord God of Israel, 
I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives, and into your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had not had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. And because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes, and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin, and you shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground. But he would not, nor did he eat with them. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died. The servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Indeed, while the child is alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house. Then he requested that they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now Joab fought against Rabbah, of the people of Ammon and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah and I have taken the city's water supply. Now therefore gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called after my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. Then he took their king's crown from his head. Its weight was a talent of gold with precious stones, 
and it was set on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance. And he brought out the people who were in it and put them to work with saws, iron picks, and iron axes, and made them cross over to the brick works. So he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word's truthfulness. We thank you that we have it and that we can read it and that we can understand it. We pray that as we meditate on 2 Samuel 12, that you would help us to understand it and more importantly, to seek to live out the truths in our day-to-day lives. In your name we pray. Amen. The passage begins, and as the passage begins in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we see that our sin must be confronted. And so Nathan comes and he confronts David with a parable. And as you look at the parable, it is is a unique parable. And it is planned in such a way that David associates himself with many aspects of the parable. If you think back to David's history, what has David been? David's been a shepherd. And so he's using these images, these words that would have resonated with David. Think of how many times David has had a favorite lamb. And so he's drawing David in with this parable. But the parable is also full of irony. As we compare some of the words that the parable uses and some of the words that we have seen from 2 Samuel chapter 11, it's obvious that There's more to it than just the parable. There are direct connections between this parable and the sins that David has committed. If you notice, the lamb sleeps with this man. They lay together. What has David done? He has taken another man's wife and he has laid with her. The text goes on, and if you notice back in chapter 11, David took Bathsheba. And once again, this lamb has been taken. There is irony in this parable. But the parable also is using a different situation to illustrate David's problem. What is the problem that we have seen in David? What could you say characterizes David as a sin problem in chapter 11? Lust doesn't really describe everything. Really, abuse of power has been David's problem, right? He's abused his power, and it's led him to all sorts of sin. It's led him to lust. It's led him to adultery. It's led him to cover-up. It's led him to murder. It's led him to stealing. We've seen all sorts of problems, and it's because of David's abuse of power. And so... Nathan is drawing David into this. And you see how drawn in David is as he realizes the rich man's guilt and announces judgment. Verse 5 really summarizes where David is as he listens to this problem. David understands the situation to be a situation in which somebody has committed a, a grievous evil and he is the judge of the nation and he is to pronounce judgment on the situation. And so he listens to the situation and he goes, this is wrong. 
And verse 5 describes David as anger was greatly aroused with the man. What does he say to Nathan? As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David's judgment exceeds the judgment that the Old Testament law code allowed for this crime. This guy's going to die, and he's going to pay back fourfold. Like, there's a righteous judge, isn't it, right? I mean, that's the idea that you get. And yet David doesn't make the connection between his own sin and the sin that he acknowledges in this other situation. But Nathan's not going to allow him to get away with this. And Nathan brings the situation home and he says, You are the man. Look at verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. It says, you're the man. This is a parable, David. You are the person who has done this vile evil. You have stolen Uriah's wife and you have sought to cover it up and you have sinned as you have sought to cover it up and that sin has led you to the point where you're willing to murder another man you are the man really God's grace is evident in confronting sin imagine where David may have gone without God coming and confronting him about his abuse of power and the many ways that that's taken shape Right? Lust, adultery, murder, theft. Imagine where else David could have gone if God had allowed him to think, as he does in chapter 11, that my sin has been hidden, and he tells his second in command, don't let this be evil in your eyes. What does God say? This is evil in my eyes. And so God graciously comes and confronts him so that he's going to have a choice. He's either going to continue down this same path, or he is going to repent and turn back to God and seek to serve him and live in faithfulness and obedience. This is gracious. This is what a loving God does when his servants disobey. This is gracious. This is loving. This is what a loving parent does when they see a child living in a way that is disobedient, when they see a child who's living in a way that doesn't measure up to the standard that God has set in his word. This is loving. This is obedient. This is what a loving spouse does when they see their spouse living in a way that does not measure up to God's standard. They go, they confront, they point them to scripture. And you do it in such a way that engages your spouse, right? It might take you a while to think about the parable and how you do that. But you don't go in with guns blazing. That's not what Nathan does, right? He goes in in a 
in a kind and loving way, and he helps David to see his own sinfulness. This is gracious. This is loving. This is what you and I are called to do for our children, for our spouse, for each other, for our workplaces. This is our responsibility. And while it's hard and it's not easy, this is true love. Our sin must be confronted. But the text is actually highlighting something else. Sin must be confronted, but sin also brings consequences. Nathan outlines David's sin. It's interesting, as Nathan tells him, you are the man, he goes and he outlines who David is and all the benefits and the blessings that God has given to David. He's made him king. He's anointed him over Israel. Not just Judah, but Israel. He's delivered you from the hand of Saul. Think of all the times that David was in the middle of the wilderness and he was afraid that he was going to lose his life. And sometimes he lived by faith and he trusted God and other times he decided to turn to his own means. God's saying, look back at all those situations. I delivered you from Saul. It wasn't because of your wisdom. It wasn't because of your skill in battle. It was because of who I am. My covenant faithfulness to you preserved you through those situations. He moves on and he says, I gave you your master's house. I gave you the kingdom that was Saul's. I gave you your master's wives. We don't know how many that is, but we do know that David already has a couple of his own. And now he's got his master's wives. It's kind of hinting at, this is a problem, right? It's, it's, you have all these wives available and you're seeking more. And gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And then he goes on and he says, and if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why did you sin? Why did you want more? I graciously blessed you with all these things. And now he is going to move in and he's going to really hammer in this idea that you have despised God's commandments. You have disobeyed in a grievous and evil way. Verse 9. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with a sword of the people of Ammon. Now the consequences. The sword will never depart from David's house. Look at verse 10. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but it will, I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. David's wives will be given to another in public. The first one deals with the fact that there's going to be a lot of violent bloodshed that happens in David's family. 
And we're going to talk about those in coming chapters. And it's interesting, if you remember, David hears about this parable and he says, he's going to die and he should restore fourfold. Uriah died. And you're going to see four of David's sons die in the following chapters. But God is going to spare David's life. As he listens to the consequences of his sin, in verse 13, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And I think this is where Psalm 51 fits in. Okay? Psalm 51 probably wasn't composed right before Nathan, but I have sinned, and his confession and his remorse that leads to Psalm 51 begins right here in verse 13. Because up till verse 13, David is not repentant for his sin. This is where he begins to move from dreading the consequences of sin to dreading his sin. And it all begins here. And Nathan acknowledges that this is finally the point where David starts to actually show repentance. And so you see in verse 14, or continuing on through verse um, 13, And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because of this deed, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme the child blaspheme the child also who is born to you shall surely die one of the results the consequences of David's sin is that the son that was conceived through his sin is going to die but David himself will be restored David himself will continue to serve God and yet the consequences remain. And the consequences are very dire. Nathan completes his explanation of the consequences of his sin. And he then departed to his own house. David humbly confesses his sin and is assured of God's forgiveness in this passage. But that doesn't mean the consequences are gone. And as we work our way through the rest of 2 Samuel, you're going to see these consequences highlighted. And the results of David's sin is going to hurt his family for a long time to come. But David is forgiven. If you've ever been disciplined at some point, you've probably at times wondered, does my parents still love me? Remember, that was a question I commonly asked myself. Like, I really struggled with that. How can, they, how can they do this? Like, not allow me to do this? Or how can they tell me I can't do that? Or how can they punish me in this way and say that they still love me? I really didn't like getting disappointed. Not at all. And you have to think that David is struggling with some of these same questions because We've dealt with these questions, even in small ways, with our parents disciplining us. And what we would have to say at this point was really a small discipline compared to our crime. I remember one time, me and my sisters were misbehaving, and my parents had told us to stop. 
we were we were living in a duplex and it had like a split uh, stairway down to the bottom part of the duplex and what we were doing was we were standing at the the split level of the stairs where it went to go down to the second level and we were jumping from that to the bottom and my parents were afraid that we were going to break a leg or something right not in a good way though and so they told us to stop and we kept doing it and they told us to stop and we kept doing it and they told us to stop and we kept doing it and then they called us up to be disciplined and I told my sisters you know when you get spanked when you get disciplined and you laugh as you are disciplined it doesn't hurt nearly as bad so while we go upstairs to get spanked just laugh the entire time and it won't hurt as bad and then we'll be done and we can go back to life as normal so we all marched upstairs we had our talking to with our parents and explained to us that they were going to punish us but they still loved us and then as my dad spanked us we all laughed we all went downstairs and then we began to make a chant I, I think my parents at this point you know while they're disciplining us they're kind of like what in the world but we have the the nerve to go downstairs and to make a chant song about how when you get disciplined and you laugh through it um, it doesn't hurt so we got called back up another time okay we deserved that second punishment just as much as we deserved the first one and I look back at it and I'm like you know they really loved us because that was such rebellion being pictured in our hearts right there that it was really loving for them to not allow that to continue but in the moment that's really hard to see and you have to see that David was probably feeling like God does not love me anymore just think back the last time God had come to David and told him thus says the Lord what happens in that passage in 2nd Samuel chapter 7 God sends his prophet to David and says thus says the Lord I'm going to build you a house and establish your kingdom for forever. You're my anointed king. And the next time he hears that phrase, it's, you've sinned. And these are the consequences. David had to be sitting there going, does God still love me? Does God still care? And as we work our way through this passage, you're going to see that God does still indeed love. God does still indeed care. Forgiveness is sure, but the consequences of sin still remain. God's love persists in the midst of the consequences for our sins. David just found out in verse 14 that his son is going to die. His son is born then in chapter uh, chapter 12, verse 15, second part. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. And David pleads for the life of the child. David, therefore, pleaded with God for the child. David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders, the advisors that David has around him, 
don't know what to do. They go and they try to comfort him and raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day, it came to pass that the child died. And you got to feel the emotions, the, the way that these advisors must have been feeling at this point. I mean, their king, who they've seen in high points and in low points, I mean, just think about David's wilderness wanderings and all the highs and lows that he's experienced. And these men have been with him and watched him experience these. And David, you know, he's had his ups and downs, but he's pretty much been a really great leader. And imagine seeing your leader sprawled out on the floor, having not eaten, having not bathed. Imagine how greasy his hair must have been, right? I mean, this guy's yuck. And then they find out the son has died, and they're sitting there going, what do we do with this guy? I mean, if we tell him, he's going to start cutting or something like that. He might go hang himself, commit suicide. How do we tell the king? Right? It goes back to the whole question of, does God still love David when he's making him face such hard consequences for his sin? Because God's love persists even at that point. And so David sees his leaders talking. And David, in verse 19, perceives that the child was dead. Therefore, David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. What does David do? What does David do? As he finds out that his son has died, he learns that his son has died and he worships the Lord. He spent all this time mourning his sin, confessing his sin, pleading that God would change his mind. Pleading that God would not kill the son for his sin. And when David finds out that indeed God has chosen to fulfill his word from verse 14... David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. And you know that this is true repentance. This is true change that we're seeing in David's heart. Because he goes, he washes, he changes his clothes, he worships. And then after all that is done, he cares for his own physical needs. That's when he finally eats. It's not simply mourning the consequences of sin and once the consequences of sin are surely known and there's nothing he can change about it, well I'm going to go back and eat a hamburger. Right? No. The consequences of his sin are dire. I, I can't imagine losing a child. And I really can't imagine losing a child as a result of my sin. But once he sees that it's happened, that God has fulfilled his word, what does he do? He goes and he worships God. Why? I think because he is beginning to realize that, yes, God does still love. I may not see drastic illustrations of the fact that God still loves me in the midst of this horrible situation, but God does still love, God does still, still care, and I am going to remain faithful to him. He goes, he washes himself, puts on new clothes, he worships then he went to his house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. And his servants come, and they're asking him, um, 
what's up with this change? Because you are so down in the dumps, and now the child's dead, and now you're eating? We thought that you would be, like, really despairing at this point. What does he say? He points them to the hope that he has in God's character. He knows that God is good, that God will do what is right. Because God is a better judge than David even is, as he tries to pronounce justice and what is right in verse 5. What does he say? He says, my hope is based on God's character. I'm not going to get that child to come back to me. I can't do that. There is nothing I can do to get that child back. That child is dead. What I do know about God's character is that while I may not have him come back to me, I will go to be with him. Why? Because of God's character. God is just. God is good. That child did nothing that deserved the punishment. And so he says God's character is faithful, and so God will preserve him with him. And I will one day see that child. It points to the fact that he knows that God loves the child, and it points to the fact that he knows that God still loves him and will not keep him from his presence, right? You're seeing evidence that David still realizes that God is one who loves his servants, even in the midst of rancid sin. And this point becomes even more evident as we work our way through the text. David points out that at the end of verse 23, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him. Loved who? David. And he went, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. The last time Nathan came, what is he telling him? Consequences for your sin. Nathan comes this time, and what is the message? He called his name Jedidiah, beloved of the Lord. Beloved of the Lord. It's a reminder that God still loves him in the midst of his sin. God ends the chapter then on a note of hope that is for the believer. Beloved of the Lord. In the midst of all the consequences, David may have lost sight of the true hope for a while, that God still loves him, that God will still use him, and that God will preserve him and preserve a place for him with the Lord. But as the chapter is concluding, the reminder comes, God still loves you. He hates your sin. He wants you to leave your sin. Don't pursue your sin. There will be consequences for sin. But God's love remains. The Lord proves his love by providing David victory once more. As the text concludes, what happens? Verse 26, Joab is still fighting the same battle that he's been fighting for a long time now. And he has seen victory is very close. They've captured the water supply. The city is soon to fall. And Joab sends word to David and says, 
hey, look, if you don't get here really quick, this city is going to fall into my hands and people are going to say that I, Joab, have delivered this city into the hands of the Israelites. So don't let that happen. Hurry up quickly, get the rest of the troops, come back up here, and when you get here, we'll finish this conquest and your name will be attached to this victory. And so David does. He goes, and as he does this, he sets on David's head the, the, the talent of gold with the precious stones, that crown, and he brought out the people who were in it and put them to work with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them cross over to the brick works. So he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. God's love guarantees that David is forgiven. He will not die. He will have a place with the Lord once again when he dies. God shows his love by providing him a child that says, Beloved of the Lord. And God allows him to once again have victory in his conquest. The consequences of sin are very real. But God's love remains even in the midst of those consequences. What is this chapter calling on you and I to do? How do we live in relationship to these truths? God will confront our sins. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, God will confront your sins. As believers, we are confronted with our sin through one another. As we talk to one another, as we engage with one another, as we live in community with one another, we hear and we see sins that are in each one of us. And it's our responsibility in a loving way, just like Nathan did, to confront those sins. That is one of the means that God uses to confront us with our sin. God uses preaching to confront our sin. God uses the ordinance of the Lord's Supper to confront us with our sin. God uses your personal time in his word to confront you with your sin. And it's not always as dramatic as we see in David's life, but God is constantly confronting us with our sin. And the question is, will you and I respond to his confrontation? And how will we respond? We either harden our hearts once again, or we turn to him in faith and repentance. Those are the two options for the believer. But God also confronts the unbeliever. And God's confrontation of the unbeliever's sin is, is different from the confrontation that he uses with the believer's sin. The believer's sin is already pointing him to the cross of Jesus Christ. Whereas the believer looks at his sin and he tries in his own means to find a solution for his sin problem. Maybe he pursues church. Maybe he pursues a Bible reading program. Maybe he pursues trying to go to various classes. Maybe he pursues serving in some manner. Maybe he pursues giving to the needy. Maybe he pursues all sorts of different things. But none of those means will actually deal with the sin problem. The way that the unbeliever is confronted with their sin 
is through the death and ministry of Jesus Christ. God sent his only son into the world to come into the world to live a perfect, sinless life so that he would be qualified to go to the cross and to pay the penalty for your sin and for my sin. And then the question is, as he confronts us with our sinfulness, what are we going to turn to? Are we going to continue to say, I can do this on my own? Are we going to come and humble ourselves and tell the Lord that we are sinners, that we deserve condemnation, we deserve separation from him, but because of his son's death in our place, we place our faith in him and we receive him to pay the penalty and we desire to then live for him as a result of his immense sacrifice on our behalf. God still confronts sin. He confronts the unbeliever's sin, and he confronts the believer's sin. Now the passage does call each of us to make a decision about how we will live as our sin is confronted. Will you respond with faith and obedience, or will you respond by hardening our hearts? Those are the two options, for the believer and for the unbeliever. The text continues, though. The text points us to the fact that God may bring severe discipline. And we really can't tell you exactly how God is going to discipline you. Or to what extent God will discipline you. We do know that for the believer... The discipline for your sin may result in your early death. God is willing to go that far in disciplining his erring children. For the unbeliever, God's severe discipline may mean eternal separation from God. The text continues, though, God's forgiveness does not necessarily eliminate our consequences. Consequences could be death for the believer. And so they can be extremely severe. And it should cause us to seek the Lord's forgiveness and to seek to live in obedience as we repent. And then finally, our repentance will bring assurance of God's continued love. Why does David have the assurance of God's continued love? because of what happened or began to happen in verse 13. He tells Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. It's at that point that David begins the path to true repentance, the true change. The abuse of power begins to fade and he begins once again to turn and to trust in the Lord, to live in obedience to the Lord. And that brings about assurance verse 14 assures us that your sin has been forgiven. You will not die. The child will, but you will not. As a child dies, once again you see that his assurance is once again growing. Why? Because not only does he know he's not going to suffer physical death, as he looks on that situation and goes, God's character means that both that child and I will one day be in the presence of our God. And as faith continues to grow, and as assurance continues to grow, that God still loves him despite his sin, 
as he looks at this new child that is born, Solomon. And God comes and says, yeah, you've named him Solomon, but I named him Jedidiah, the loved of the Lord. And then his faith is continued to grow as he sees himself once again stepping into the rightful place of a king and having great victories. God's love is assured in our hearts as we turn to him in faith. And so if you're a believer here and you're going, you know, you say that God will confront our sin and sometimes I'm not sure if I'm, if I'm truly a believer or if I'm an unbeliever because I just don't feel like God loves me. And it might be that you feel that way because as a believer, you've never truly repented of some sin. You've mourned the consequences, but you've never truly repented of the sin. I would encourage you to examine your hearts. Do you realize that you're a sinner? How are you dealing with that sin? What do you think will provide you with forgiveness? If it's anything but the blood of Jesus Christ that's shed on the blood and his resurrection, your hope is misplaced. And you will not have assurance of God's continued love in the midst of your sin. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is truthful, that it allows us to know you better. It allows us to know how we are to live in relationship to you in a way that is honoring and pleasing to you. We thank you for the lesson that you take sin seriously, that you are a holy God, and that the consequences of our sin may be extremely hard. We thank you that you are a faithful and just and righteous God. That in the midst of our sinfulness and in the midst of the horrendous acts of evil that we may commit or look upon, that your love still remains. We pray that we would be assured of your love as we turn to you in repentance. In your name we pray. Song. This morning, Christ received us sinful men. Let's stay. Mm -hmm. 